Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast, Transformative Principle and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety, and today from the law. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. This podcast is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, and we uh, would like to recognize our mission partner, Buoyancy Digital. They are a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy Digital was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in the digital media since 1997 and has overseen 300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and being a credit brand and sales audience safe, advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, reach out to Buoyancy Digital at buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R Media on LinkedIn. That was tough. <laughs> it's like I've never seen that text before. <laughs> I know. I was, I was deleting alternative words as you were going through. It must have been that. Anyway, greetings, Jethro. Greetings. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. It is a distinct pleasure to introduce to you and to our audience our interview guest, Mark Zaid. He has both an impressive and a lengthy resume that we will include in the show notes, but I will give you some of the highlights. He is a Washington, D.C.-based attorney who specializes in crisis management and innovatively handling simple and complex administrative and litigation matters relating to national security, international law, foreign, sovereign, and diplomatic immunity, and the Freedom of Information Privacy Acts. Just as an aside, I've had a chance to work with Mark on a couple of cases in my other career as an expert witness, so this is a nice little reunion here. Throughout his practice, Mr. Zaid often represents former slash current federal employees, particularly intelligence and military officers, defense contractors, whistleblowers, and others who have grievances have been wronged by or are being investigated by agencies of the United States government or foreign governments, as well as members of the media. Mr. Zaid teaches the DC Bar continuing legal education classes on, quote, the basics of filing and litigating Freedom of Information slash Privacy Act requests since 2003, defending security clearances since 2006. Over the last 12 years, he has been named a Washington DC super lawyer every single year, including being profiled and I could take up another 15 minutes or so of the podcast, but Mark, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks guys. It's an absolute pleasure to be here and to be reunited with you. I appreciate you saying that. Um, let's dive right in. So the, the focus of our chat is really in the concept of cyber traps, things that people are stumbling into because of technology. You've been doing the national security whistleblower beat for a while. How has technology changed what you do? Technology has changed a lot, I think, of what any lawyer, of course, has done. So I started practicing law in 
1993 and been in D.C. for almost 98%, 99% of my career. I remember having to work at the office till late hours of the night and then rushing to the courthouse by 11.59 p.m. so I could timestamp my court filing versus now I just boom push a button at all hours of the day just to do an e-filing. So, you know, without a doubt, uh, it's just fundamentally transformed the law practice. But on the national security side, it has had obviously a significant impact in so many different areas. And I'll just rattle off some and then we can do a deeper dive in some of the issues. I handle a lot of security clearance work. That's how you and I first met when I brought you in to help me on some security clearance matters as an expert witness uh, on child pornography uh, and pornography. And so pornography is one of the key places to say of how has that had an impact on uh, with cybersecurity and, and security clearances. And the, the number one issue would be uh, folks who have security clearances, whether contractors or civil servants, looking at pornography on their computers that are either at work or government laptops outside of the workplace, or the most recent case I had, on their cell phone personal cell phone, but on government property. And I'm not even talking about child pornography. I'm just talking about normal, everyday, lawful pornography, but you can't deal with it on government property. So that's been one area. Obviously, hacking, dealing with in the intelligence community, you know, what steps do we take for protecting communications? I can go into more detail about instances where uh, anonymous attacked us, uh, where uh, issues when I've had very high profile cases, especially when they're political in nature or related, such as the intelligence community whistleblower in the first impeachment of Donald Trump and how we were uh, attacked and death threats and tracing emails and the use of emails and how we communicate in a, in a cyber secure manner with clients or whistleblowers and whistleblowers in clouds and other Tor browsers, things like that. Uh, you know, all of those have, have really been the fundamental issues in, in my national security practice. So I guess one of the first things I have to ask before we dig into some of these is, do you have your own skiff? <laughs> so now, so, you know, for years I have asked the government, I do have a clearance, uh, present. It's a TSSCI, which is top secret sensitive compartment and information. That is the highest level clearance. That doesn't mean I can you know, see the president's daily brief or anything like that. But on a particular cases, I get access to classified information, oftentimes because the very affiliation of my client to the government agency, like the CIA, it may be a classified secret. So, but I've asked for years, can I have a storage facility on my premises and the government wants to keep me away from classified information as much as it can so I have no secure communications I have and we should talk a little bit about that because I, I have some kind of they're, they're funny but not funny in a haha -ha. they're funny in a like give me a break how pathetic is this uh, scenario that you should remind me of with respect to communicating with some of the intelligence agencies one of my office locations does have a skiff. 
if, if I needed to go to it. So in that sense, I guess, yes, but typically no. So let's talk about that communication, because if you're dealing with these types of things, you have to have some systems in place to help with communication so that you know, lawyer confidentiality is one thing, but then dealing in top secret issues is another. So let's talk about some of the communication strategies you use and even if they're laughable. Yeah. So, you know, it it has of course been amazing in watching as this has developed over the course of my career. And I vividly remember setting up my first email account on AOL in February of 1996. I still have the email address. I don't use it for work. It's just, you know, so many people know it from three decades ago. I just keep it, you know, and but barely use it. Of course, you know, the problems in the earlier days, say in the late 90s, early 2000s, were more of the, the pop-ups and the spams and everything we were dealing with. You know, a lot of that's been obviously filtered out over time. But I learned firsthand back in, I'm trying to remember when it was, I don't know, give or take 2010, 2008, 9 or 10, when I was working, I was the senior civilian defense counsel for Staff Sergeant Frank Wooderick, who was accused of war crimes in Iraq, in Haditha, Iraq, coming out of a massacre, and it was a massacre of Uh, almost two dozen civilians in November of 2005. And uh, Wooderick was the scapegoat for this atrocity. And there were people who committed murder that day in the U.S. Marines. They just thankfully were not my client, as we were able to prove later on. It was other members of the squad. It was a highly politically charged, political with like a little P, but political charged in the sense of, you know, war crimes, left, right type things, military. And the law firm that I was working with got hacked by Anonymous. And Anonymous, somebody, you know, took uh, their email, all their work files and posted them online. So all of our emails, our privileged communications were posted online. Now, thankfully, it, it didn't harm anything we were doing. And it wasn't, thankfully, my my accounts. It was my co-counsel's accounts, which captured my emails as well. And, you know, there was some, you know, banter between guys and things like that. That was, you know, the worst of it other than the horror of having your emails taken. But it freaked me out completely because it showed how vulnerable that we were. And so I had all these meetings with especially my Intel clients who were cybersecurity experts to figure out what could I do to prevent this? What steps could I take? And I basically learned I can't do a darn thing uh, at the end of the day. Who, who am I going to be? Who am I most concerned about? Foreign governments, and I can't, I'm not going to be able to stop the Russians, the Chinese, the Israelis from coming into my system. Uh, I don't think the U.S. government is coming into my system. I mean, please try. If I catch you, oh, my God, this would be a field day of a case for me. Front page New York Times. Uh, I wish wish everybody could see the look of glee in Mark's eyes as he says. I'm like, I just don't expect that, that, you know, someone in the CIA, maybe an individual in the CIA. And if, if you guys remember the movie Enemy of the State, 
with Will Smith, Gene Hackman, 1998, I think it's it was. a great movie. Highly recommended. Still, it is a fantastic movie. It's one of those movies that, you know, if it's on on a Saturday, Sunday afternoon, I will watch it, even though I've seen it 100, 200 times. That has been the only time that I got nervous about dealing with the intelligence agencies. And it wasn't because NSA in the movie had a hit team, which it does not, uh, or that, the you know, a deputy director of the NSA was going to, or, you know, hack into me and, and frame me as a lawyer, which was what happened in the movie. No, I wasn't scared about that at all. What it unnerved me about was a rogue individual inside one of the intel agencies who I would have pissed off from one of my cases who would have played havoc with my credit cards, my bank accounts, which would be easy for them. It would be illegal, but, you know, it would be easy. And if they were bold, emboldened or daring enough, it could happen, and I, you know, who would want to deal with that? But uh, so I learned that you know it was going to be too expensive for me as a small law, small firm lawyer to be able to counter things. You know, I use Google, Gmail, you know, and I I rely on the strength of their system to protect me from at least you know the the general the the ninety five percent of the hackers who would try and fail. And if Google can't stop the other 5% from getting through to me, then I, what? no way am I going to stop that 5%. So, Well, that that's right. I mean, if it, to, to use the Russian uh, organization, I mean, if Fancy Bear comes hunting for you, you know, there's not going to be much you can put in the way of a trained team of infiltrators. Let's shift gears a little bit, Mark, and talk about the the whistleblower environment and and there's it's going to lead into a discussion of freedom of information act because what i really want to talk about in both of those contexts is the rise of ephemeral communication you know telegram even snapchat in in you know for the kids but all of these apps out there that are designed to allow communication and then the communication goes away so how is that playing into the whistleblower scenario? And then does the Freedom of Information Act or the Government Records Act actually mean anything anymore? In 2017, I helped found Whistleblower Aid, which is a separate law firm that I have that is a nonprofit law firm to provide pro bono for free legal representation to whistleblowers. And many of my cases are in part through Whistleblower Aid. The guy who founded it with me, John Tai, is a former client of mine and was a whistleblower, a national security whistleblower at the State Department in the wake of Ed Snowden's theft and disclosure of classified information. And John did it the right way. We follow the law. We represent whistleblowers. We make sure that if they have classified disclosures, we follow the law in doing so, just like we did in the first impeachment for Donald Trump. Now. In that context, whistleblower aid has set up uh, the Tor system and Proton Mail and everything to be the most secure. They, they tout themselves as the most secure law firm around. And I don't know if that's true or not. I can tell you I hate it because it, 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 it slows down a lot of the process. Quite frankly, most of the communications we have, uh, certainly we never have classified communications because you mentioned the SCIF, this secure compartmented information facility, which is a room 
or building that where we can have proper classified conversations. We can't do that on email or the phone or Zoom or Signal, doesn't matter what it is, the vehicle can't do it unless it's a government secured approved system. So it, it, I have found again, you know, if some foreign government's gonna get into my system, they're gonna get into almost anything. Now, what do we do? We don't, we use Signal um, and in other vehicles, uh, WhatsApp, uh, other chat functions to communicate with people uh, sometimes in setting the system so that it deletes the communications afterwards. Now that raises interesting questions at times because uh, some of the government agencies, the three letter Intel agencies, don't want their employees using those systems, uh, even privately, and want them to report it if they do. And we don't want to create additional problems for the for the client so sometimes we can't use that system um, for, for that purpose we certainly will from a freedom of information act standpoint you know that has technology has really overburdened the system because the difference between from the mid 90s uh, to now or before the mid 90s was email and you know the 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 number of classified documents has got you know skyrocketed at that time because government employees got on email and and you know how many emails do we all send a day most of which is probably you know meaningless uh, you know if you send an email at the CIA internally and you say hey I want to you want to go meet at the Dunkin Donuts that they have in their cafeteria it's a classified email because their system automatically classifies everything going through it. But you know, well, you, well, your average CIA guy is, I mean, that's potentially operational intelligence. For could, government. Yeah. You know, depending on what you're going to do at, but they haven't, they have an internal Dunkin Donuts. I've, I've eaten there uh, and gotten donuts there. But so, you know, that has made it problematic. I had a case just recently, in fact, a FOIA case against the department of interior where, uh, cell phone text messages were in play and clearly I'm pretty confident that they destroyed the individuals in, in, in question destroyed their text messages when they weren't supposed to what am I gonna do how am I gonna prove that uh, we had instances in the last few years this came out it came out particularly when I was litigating and dealing with Hillary Clinton's emails when she was the Secretary of State of the fact that, and this is common, it wasn't unique to her, quite frankly, but it, it became more known, better known, more pronounced, the use of personal cell phones and private personal email to conduct government business. Now, there are rules for that. I think I read something about that, Mark. <laughs> there are rules of what you need to do. You're supposed to CC your government account so it gets into the system because those records have to be preserved. But you know, they don't always do it. And we, we had all these issues where we were trying to get access to what were government records, but on private systems. And could we compel those people to turn over their personal phones? And usually they did so voluntarily because it was such a high profile mess. But that's, that is a constant issue that, that we are having with folks. Yeah, well, just really simply as a school principal, I would give my phone number out to parents so that they could contact me. But really, I was doing 
school business on my personal cell phone, which even they have rules about that. And that's taking it down to the super small level, but we're dealing with state secrets. We're dealing with information that you certainly don't want to be public. You say that it's common, but how do these government officials, quote unquote, get away with it? Is it because people are just aren't paying attention or because it's too hard to track or because there's so much going on that we just can't take the time to, to find all that? So I'll put it into two primary camps, and I'm sure I could come up with other camps if, if I wanted to, but the two primary camps, and the largest of those two is actually dedicated federal employees who are just trying to do their job, and it is more convenient for them to be on their personal devices because either they're trying to work at home at night, forget COVID, this is all pre-COVID. It's obviously exacerbated now during COVID, but they're trying to do work at home in the evening or on the weekend, and they're having too much difficulty accessing their government server and their work account. So they're using their personal accounts. And I'd say that is by far the, the, the biggest crux. And those people are probably trying their best to make sure that there's a copy in their work system, but maybe they maybe they missed it, who knows. But then there is the other camp, without a doubt, and this was actually advice that Colin Powell as Secretary of State, former, gave Hillary Clinton as the current Secretary of State back then to use a personal account to keep it off the government system. And there are conversations, without a doubt, that certain government officials use especially text messages that, uh, you know, are purposely kept off the government system. And then we are at the mercy of folks, you know, either revealing it candidly or somebody tells us that that's what's being done. I mean, we routinely now get into the course of when we submit our FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests, that we, we, we will target the cell phones of uh, federal senior federal employees to try and capture that. So with those FOIA requests, is there a point at which there's so much information in there that it, it basically becomes security by an immense amount of paperwork and it's not, it's not worth it to try to comb through everything to find one little nugget because, you know, I get thousands of emails a day. I can only imagine what people on those higher level of government get. Is, is there such a thing as there's too much information and, and then it's too hard to find? Yes. Uh, and, you know, there's old, you'd watch in movies and old television shows about lawyers and discovery, you know, in, in civil litigation uh, cases. And I, I'm remembering a was it called class act? It was a Gene Hackman and he was up against his daughter and they were suing an auto manufacturer. It's a really good lawyer film because uh, it was fairly accurate. Uh, I want to say it was called class action, but I could be wrong about that in the early nineties. And in, in the film, the auto manufacturer found a, uh, a, a report that was damning about the engine blowing up. So in order, they, they did the right thing in providing it, turning it over, but they turned over like a million pages of documents that were even peripherally related in order to bury the one damning report. So 
does that happen in the government? I don't know if that happens in the government. Maybe uh, it <laughs> well, was a good movie. If but, I may, Mark, real quickly, one brief change, or one, not brief, but one, I should say, significant change in the 30 years since that film came out, and that'll make you feel old, is the fact that now we've got computers and increasingly artificial intelligence to do that kind of document chewing, you know, that they couldn't do back then. Right. Right. They could just search search through it. And you got e-discovery and, and everything. But, but I would say where it backfires against us, and I can give you a perfect example that is literally was today for me as we're taping this, in that when we give search terms into the government for FOIA requests, whatever it might be, as lawyers, we tend to be a little bit overexpansive because that's what we're used to in discovery requests. We're, we're fishing at times. We don't necessarily know what we're searching for. I mean, it's easy, great, if we know, hey, I, could, I want that inspector general report. But if I want, for example, all documents relating to the murder of Seth Rich uh, and what was the Department of Justice doing and looking into it, who was a DNC staffer who was murdered in the streets of D.C., and linked to the, the DNC theft of their server and conspiracy theories and Hillary Clinton and all sorts of horrific conspiracy theories that were totally bogus. Uh, and thankfully the family just settled, I think with Fox News or some other high profile, Fox News and some other high profile journalists for defamation against uh, their son. I mentioned this because I'm litigating a case about some documents for Seth Rich and the Justice Department came back and said, uh, we have potentially identified a thousand responsive pages because they were looking at an actual overexpansive set of documents of how they applied their search term. And a thousand is actually small. I, I have other cases where they say we've identified 75,000 potentially responsive documents. And then I need to go back to the government and say, okay, what search terms are you using? Because you may be doing something I don't want. Let me try and narrow this down for you. No, I don't need the public just mm -hmm. weighing in on the topic. I, I, I don't, you know, it's a government record if they receive it from the public, but I don't want the public's documents. I don't want multiple email strings of, you know, that's capturing the old emails that I already have the specific originating email. Uh, I don't want the emails about hey, do you want to meet at Starbucks and we'll talk about the <laughs> Seth Rich case? You know, because the, right. there's tons of those. You know, just think of your own email accounts, right? How often it takes you to schedule a meeting. You want to do it at this time? No, I can do it this time. Can I change it now? You know, and we get all those. And it's like, <laughs> don't but they're me, relevant. Don't get me started. No, no, well, no. And just for our listeners, right, the, the narrowing of a FOIA request is actually a financial consideration, right? Because don't you get charged basically by the page? You, you can, so it will depend on the status of you as a requester, whether you're a media requester, a, an academic requester, a commercial requester. Most times, if you're not a commercial requester, you'll avoid having to pay for search fees because the government won't be able to comply with the statute in a quick enough time, and then they're precluded from doing so. You may be on the hook for copying costs, and that could actually add up significantly. Now, here's where there's been some benefit for the advancement of technology, because I always ask now for just give it to me on a disk or email it to me. I don't want hard copies. I mean, I used to get overwhelmed 
by the government sending me boxes and boxes of hard copies. And then I'm like, what am I going to do with it? I got to get it to the client. It's a pain to scan it in myself. But now I always ask, give it to me on a CD-ROM or email it to me. And most agencies will do that. Now, interestingly enough, directly on topic to what we're talking about, we had a huge litigation battle with the CIA uh, because the CIA would refuse to put its information onto CD-ROMs because they were saying that it required too much effort on their part internally from the unclassed system toward the classified system to the unclassified system, and they were too concerned of screwing it up and including metadata in the documents that we could access. And, and we're like, well, I'm sorry, guys, you got to move into the 21st century because your sister agencies, the NSA, the DIA, the FBI, they all do it. And if they can do it, I think you can do it. And we ultimately prevailed on that and they have to. Well, that's that is just fascinating stuff, Mark, to, to hear you talking about. Let's let's go back to the clearance issue a little bit, because obviously that's what introduced you and me. Uh, the fact that you had some folks who got into trouble because of what was on their computer. And may, maybe talk about this a little bit philosophically in the sense that, you know, the clearance issue, as much as anything else, is vulnerability to blackmail, right? That there's going to be some concern that something you've done makes you a target of a foreign government. Can an argument be made? I mean, putting aside child pornography, which is absolutely illegal and, and you know, not protected by the First Amendment, but can an argument be made that some of the you know, more quote unquote mainstream adult materials no longer open someone up to that kind of manipulation? I mean, obviously you shouldn't be doing it on work time, et cetera, but is there a little bit of a, a disparity there now? There are still instances, and I have a current case actually involving lawful pornography, and where the, the potential blackmail coercion issue could come up. Pornography, or also I'll add in this, it's not just pornography in the sense of, oh, let me go on to this pornography, Pornhub, or I'm not sure what, what, whether I should state pornographic websites on the podcast, but uh, but uh, going to these different sites, it's not just that. It's also the live chats with whatever gender. doesn't make a difference. That is oftentimes, though not necessarily, with foreign nationals on foreign servers that are potentially being monitored by foreign governments. You never know. Or it could be, you know, some sort of sting opera, you know, you, and that probably not some sort of honey trap or whatever, but let's just take governments are not involved. But the case I had recently, guy was having uh, sexual relations with women overseas and his spouse didn't know necessarily at one point. So that's potential blackmail coercion. And when we have those cases, we always have to have the spouse. It's almost always a guy, but every once in a while it, it is a woman tell their spouse what they were doing, or, or prostitution, or massage parlors. And even if, they're, if, even if they're legal, the blackmail coercion, or uh, homosexuality, that back in the day, which wasn't that long ago back in the day, was a huge potential problem if you were inside an intelligence agency. It is not any longer unless you're hiding it. And you're again, 
potentially subject to blackmail or coercion or lawful pornography or sexual activities that might not be mainstream mm. and whether or not that creates a situation that is subject to blackmail coercion uh, we can usually diffuse it um, but it, it can be a problem and you know the case that you and I well numerous times where I've had you help me you know child pornography that is child pornography hey that's easy no go right there. you're done that, at that that's point. Only, yeah. the problem is is it child pornography and I have it is very obvious to me that most people including inside the US government and the intelligence community especially from security standpoint do not know what the legal definition of child pornography is and most people think okay here's a nude image of a child that's child pornography and you could question from a morality ethical standpoint why would you be looking at a nude image of a child that is not your own but it is not child pornography unless it meets the legal definition of you know being involved in a lewd lascivious sexual behavior act with with themselves or someone else and most cases that I have had in the security clearance realm with allegations of child pornography never actually includes or involves child pornography mm -hmm. uh, and that has been disconcerting over the years not not that it isn't child pornography but that people are having to defend themselves against allegations of child pornography when in fact they were never looking at child pornography yeah i think what what i was getting at at the beginning of the show which kind of brings us you know comes back in this in this realm is that technology and in in many cases i think mobile technology has just so blown open access to such a wide range of materials that it it just seems like these cases are more and more likely to come up for you um, just because the realm of opportunity is so much greater yeah absolutely and it's just in great ease that just makes it in fact looking at it a little bit differently from when i when I deal a lot with classified leak of cases, you know, leaking of classified information, who are not whistleblowers when they do that, uh, because it doesn't, you can't, you can't disclose classified information to unauthorized third parties and be a whistleblower. The reason why so many of the leakers have been caught in recent years, uh, it was always, I'll hear people say, oh, the Obama administration prosecuted more people for leaking classified information than any administration previously combined. And statistically, that's true. Why is it true? It's not because the Obama administration was so much more fervently against leakers. I can tell you administrations before them hated classified leakers and always wanted to go after them. It was technology had advanced so much that the leakers were sloppy. They were using devices that could be traced their work computers were monitored. It was, it's just now so much easier for the US government to capture a classified leaker because of technology than ever before. It's an evidentiary thing that is just more simple uh, to get. Caught. I think one of the terrifying things about it though, Mark, and, and this gets to Snowden, it gets to Reality Winder, you know, is the volume of material that someone can exfiltrate from a system is so much greater now because it's digitized. I mean, when you look at Snowden, he was downloading gigabytes 
if not terabytes, of classified information. Yeah, starting with Manning, that was what was going on. And Manning was in Iraq at the time, and the protocols here in the United States where you, you couldn't just put a CD-ROM in a classified system and download, the system would know it. But what they were using in Iraq did not have the same safeguards. So Manning was able to do that without being caught. Snowden was a contractor and he was able to uh, go around. So he, I mean, he might've had, I'm trying to remember exactly how he put it onto either thumb drives or, or CD-ROMs, but uh, he, he had access to lawfully to the databases and was able to, like you said, download. In fact, we don't even know how much. One, something up to 1.7 million pages or documents, depending on what document you read to describe what he did. I mean, so much so, and this is my argument against what he did, so much volume that he never could have read right. it. So don't tell me like you knew what you were looking at when you gave it over to And reporters. it was a big act of conscience I, and yada. <laughs> yeah, what, nobody could read that amount of, of data and be, be assured. The thing I was mentioning about earlier before we get to the end of the podcast, uh, technology has also created greater opportunities for error. And routinely, and it tends to be the Defense Intelligence Agency for some reason, routinely they will email me something, obviously on an unclassified secure system, that they then realize afterwards had classified information in it. You must love that. And then they freak out. <laughs> and I have to scrub the system. I have a case right now where they did it yet again. Uh, and we have to figure out just how to scrub the information. But the, the laughable moment I mentioned earlier, that sort of ha-ha and also, geez, give me a break, is, for example, I do a lot of work representing intelligence officers and military who write manuscripts, books, and then get them published. And we have to get them through pre-publication review to make sure there's no classified information. Most recently, I, I helped H.R. McMaster, General McMaster, President Trump's former national security advisor, get his book cleared through a bunch of agency. And I've had a lot of high-profile CIA people over the years. And some of the agencies will allow the author to email in their manuscript for review for classification purposes and when if, if they come to me before they've done that I refuse to let them do it even though the agency will actually tell me no it's okay and I'm like no it's not what are you talking about <laughs> if you email it in and then you say there's classified information in the manuscript no thanks why would you do that why would you even authorize people to do that I make my clients hand deliver or FedEx because you can FedEx uh, or use the Postal Service overnight for classified information up to certain levels, double wrap it, etc. But I mean, I'm amazed at the inconsistency that I see within the government. It's and it's a convenience, obviously, because they want to have an electronic copy because it's easier for them to then disseminate it internally. Right. But it makes no sense uh, <laughs> when I see that. Well, with that discouraging <laughs> illustration of American government to close out on. <laughs> Let me ask you this, Mark, just as a closing note. I mean, obviously, you're dealing with national security. You're dealing with cybersecurity for the average person. 
if you were to tell them the one thing that would keep them more secure, what would you recommend? Oh, wow. Um, stay off of social media and don't use email. <laughs> I mean, you know, ironically, that, that's, you know, unfortunately it. And make use of your privacy settings and, and understand, you know, what that means. Um, think twice before you tweet and never do it when you're drinking. <laughs> you know, look, when I did the whistleblower case, I had a, a tweet from three, how are you, two years earlier, three, two years earlier, uh, come up and haunt me yeah. during it. Now, I could care less about the tweet, it was a, but it was a significant distraction. It was, a non, it was totally distorted uh, uh, what it meant, but, you know, the other side combed through, you know, 17,000 of my tweets to find this. And we just had, you know, a nominee of President Biden uh, had their nomination withdrawn because of tweets. Yeah, they, near they a made. tandem. This, yeah. Near and a actually, this the stuff, news, yeah, I'm sorry, but the news just flashed the Vogue, Teen Vogue, the editor they hired, she just resigned because of stuff she did as a teenager. Yeah, I tell you, that scares me more than anything else, uh, actually. And I am so happy that I went to college in the 80s where where none of those photographs are online and activities of daily blogging about what I did and things like that. Uh, although I will, I've had conversations with my university as they've put the school newspaper online from previous decades. Mm -hmm advocating that you know I love it that that information is available but it concerns me that something that a 19 year old wrote 30 40 years ago could come back and haunt them as a senior official in the government or a, a public figure because you know when you're 19 and you do something you know first of all society has you know changes a great deal we see with woke culture and you know the me movement, me too movement, and things like that. Things that were acceptable 30 years ago are not acceptable now, and should you be punished for it? And the the virtual online environment enhances that risk. And I think we do need to have uh, an ongoing, continuing debate over is that appropriate and is that fair? Is that what we want? And obviously, that's not something we're going to solve. Well, it's Great questions, though, and we will schedule a freedom of speech First Amendment podcast, and we'll have you back to talk that through. And in the meantime, I I will pray that Amherst College never publishes my seven-page intense defense of the fraternity system. <laughs> oh God, no! I can imagine what that is, having been in eternity to myself. My views have changed. Let's put it that way. So anyway, Mark, this has been just fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure, guys. I really appreciate Excellent. it. Excellent. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of cases, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, national security, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology.
You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps and Mark is at Mark S. Zaid Esquire. That's Z-A-I-D. If you're still listening, you must have loved what you heard like we did. And if so, please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service of choice. We appreciate having you here today and we look forward to talking with you on our live show on Monday. 